All right, let's begin with prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, the giver of all that is good, by your holy inspiration grant that we may think those things that are right and by your merciful guiding accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the verse for the week is from John chapter 5. Let's speak this together. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to men, even so the Son gives life to the people. Okay, look at this, we've got colored markers now. We're moving up in the world. Okay, uh, here's where I want to start. As the Father raises the dead, how does the Father raise the dead? In Christ. And gives life to them. How does the Father give life to them? In Christ. Even so, the Son, and who is the Son? The Son is Christ, gives life to whom He will. Here's the other thing. For as, even so. Grammatically, these are part of the same idea, the same thought. For as the Father raises the dead, even so the Son gives life. There is unity of the Father and the Son, a unity of act, a unity of word, unity of will. That ties into the Bible class on the Trinity. Distinct, yet united. And the final question then is, to whom does Christ and, by definition, the Father wish or will to give life? To all, yes, think of John 3.16, which is not too far before this. For the whole world, who, to whom does he will? To all. As the Father raises the dead in Christ and gives life to them in Christ, even so Christ himself gives life to those whom he will, mainly all people. Through what? Through his crucifixion and uh, death and subsequent resurrection. Okay? Uh, let's speak this again. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Okay, catechism is from uh, the sacrament of the altar. Again, who receives this sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. But that person is truly worthy and well prepared who has faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared. For the words for you require all hearts to believe. Okay, uh, the first note I want to make is in the question itself. Who receives this sacrament worthily? Now, I don't care for the term worthily. I don't like using the word worthy. Uh, and here's why. Who is worthy to receive the body and the blood of Jesus? True. It's sort of a paradox. Who is worthy? No one. But at the same time, who is worthy? Everyone. So you only have uh, extremes here. Uh, so with the word worthy, that is. So I prefer the term rightly. Who receives the sacrament rightly? Uh, so then Luther goes in, fasting and bodily preparation are fine. If you want to fast before receiving the Eucharist, do it. You have my blessing. If you want your first meal to be the meal that is the body and blood of Christ that comes from his own hand, then by all means, have that practice. 
that is a practice perfectly fine for the pious hearts of Christians, but it is not required. Uh, it is certainly fine outward training, or uh, as in the Latin of the small catechism says, they are certainly fine exercises for training the childlike body and mind. You train yourself, you teach yourself, everything teaches. By bodily preparation you teach yourself more about what the sacrament is and who it's for. However, it's outward training. That is not what makes you worthy <clears throat> uh, to receive the sacrament, or that's not what causes you to receive rightly. Rather, what causes you to receive rightly is faith in the words. And from the previous weeks uh, in this part of the Catechism, we already know the words, the verba. What do they do? The verba join to the elements and make, the, make it the body and the blood. Without the word, it is just bread and wine, like in baptism. Uh, without the word, it is just plain water. Without the word, it is just bread and wine. But with the word, it is the sacrament. You have faith in the words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. I.e., you have faith in the verba and in the fact that when the words of Christ are spoken, they do what they say and that it is the body and the blood. Uh, anyone who does not believe or doubts are not receiving rightly, which is why we do not permit those who do not believe uh, to receive. Because it's not about you sinning uh, against God or offending your neighbor as much as it is we want what's good for you and drinking bleach out of the cleaning cupboard is not good for you, which is what the Eucharist turns into if you approach and say no thank you to Jesus. The bottom line of this whole second part, anyone who does not believe, anyone who doubts, they are unworthy and unprepared for the words for you require all hearts to believe. It says this, don't say yes but to Jesus. If you say yes but, that is not faith, that is a rejection. Faith says one word and that word is Amen. Because faith only does one thing, and that is, follows Jesus, agrees. Faith agrees with what Jesus says. So when Jesus says, this is my body, you say, amen. In fact, I was telling the midweek kids just this past week, I even leave a space, if you listen really carefully, when I'm giving it to you. The body of Christ, given for you. I leave a space there to give you the opportunity to say your part if you so desire. You can say, the body of Christ, Amen, given for you. I leave a space there for you so that you can see everything that is taught here in this catechism in action. Questions? Uh, yes, kids, you can go downstairs. Um. Yeah, there's a few things, uh, a few things to say about that in my answer. The first is, if a non-Lutheran wishes to receive the sacrament. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, okay, so this is, this is really a question about the practice of closed communion. And there are two facets to the discussion on closed communion, why we practice it the way we do. The first is, from the Christian perspective, is this the body and blood of Jesus, yes or no? If the answer is no, then don't come to have it, because if you tell Jesus no, then that which is good for the Christian heart of faith becomes poison to the heart of unbelief. So we say, please don't do it. Please do not eat this. 
um, in the same way that you tell your child, please don't down a whole bottle of aspirin because it's bad for you and I don't want to hurt you and I don't want you to be hurt. That's the first uh, aspect is just from the universal Christian church, uh, the Catholic with a small c perspective. But the second is from the standpoint of uh, confession and unity of body. So when you commune at an altar, you say amen to everything that is taught at that altar and you make the public confession of that body your personal confession. It doesn't matter whether you agree with everything that is said or not. When you commune with the community, it's called communion for a reason because you are a body, a communio, together in that act. So if you even reject what is being taught and yet commune there, you are making yourself one with the doctrine. So somebody, say, from the Church of Christ comes here, I'm overjoyed to see them in church. They want to commune. They say, yes, it is the true body and blood of Christ because Jesus says so. I desire it because it, I believe that it is for the forgiveness of my sins. The very thing that was crucified is what I receive. I want nothing else than the body and blood of Christ. I say, thanks be to God. I rejoice in your confession. However, you're visiting with us for this Sunday, but what happens next Sunday when you go back to your own church? You might be a Lutheran today, and you might be speaking our confession and becoming a part of our community today, but what happens next Sunday when you go back to the Church of Christ? Are you still going to commune there? When your Baptist grandmother comes to visit and she wants to commune and she says she believes everything that happens here, that's great. I rejoice with the confession, but what happens next? Now you're saying amen to everything that is taught here. Are you going to go back to the Baptist church and then say, never mind, it's not really the true body and blood of Christ? So this is the community aspect. The, the community of which you are a part is your confession, whether or not you realize it and whether or not you like it. Uh, so where you commune matters. So if you're already a member of a different congregation, like, say, the Church of Christ, and you're actively communing there, that is your community, and that is your confession. Everything that they teach and believe is what you then teach and believe by nature of you being in communion with them. Which means even if you were baptized uh, Lutheran, confirmed Lutheran, raised Lutheran, at this point in time, you are Church of Christ. So if you want to come here and you want to be part of our, uh, our communion, I rejoice with you, but there are some steps we have to take before I can run in and start giving you the body and the blood. You can only be a part of one uh, community. What if they are that's another thing. If they are not actively going to church, which is why one of the, reason, one of the questions that I ask is uh, about your church. Where are you going to church? Because that matters. There are some people that I have communed who uh, were sure they were baptized Lutheran. They were born Lutheran. They have been out of church for a while, and they're starting to come back to church. Do I withhold the sacrament from them even though they make the same confession that we do and currently have no community? No, but I do follow up with them because I'm not going to give the body and blood of Christ out willy-nilly. This isn't your free sample at Sam's or Costco. This is, a, this is a bigger deal. So when you join yourself to the community, you better believe that I'm going to be following up with you to make sure that you're a part of this community. Bruce. Would communion with a church that does not believe that it is the true body and blood of Christ, are we endorsing that denomination's belief? And are we, if we communion, are we, uh, let's just say, taking damnation to our souls by? Yeah, so the short answer is yes, in a way. Again, because what is 
to commune at an altar is to say amen to the teachings of the altar. Yes. So whatever is taught at that altar and whatever that communion or that community believes who gathers around that altar, if you are a part of that altar and you commune with the community, you are a part of that community, you make their confession your confession. So if they believe that it is not the body and blood of Christ and you commune with that group, you acquiesce and say, you know what, you're right. Amen to what you teach. This is not the body and blood of Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we have visitors in the church. Yes. They do not know uh, our beliefs of it being the true body and blood. They think it's just some song for now. Mm hmm. If they went up to the communion rail, would you? Yes. And you had to, you know, hurriedly ask. Yeah, this is, so, this is the whole reason why we have that bulletin announcement and why it's on the front page. The bulletin isn't for you. You know the service. You can follow along. All the hymns are on the boards. The pages for the liturgy are on, uh, on the right-hand board. You don't need the bulletin. You can follow along yourself. The only thing that you need is the propers because you need your responses. But the visitors don't know anything, or we assume that visitors coming in don't know the liturgy as well, or don't know how we do things specifically here at Holy Trinity. So the bulletin is really for visitors, which is why all of that important stuff sits right on the front page so that it's easily seen. But there is that thing about guests in the Holy Eucharist. I want people to come talk to me, and if you know that you have a guest coming, you come talk to me or have your guests come talk to me so that I can speak with them because that, that again, to answer your question, Bruce, it's sort of a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I can't make one really broad statement and say nobody can commune unless you are an LCMS Lutheran and you brandish your little ID card to me. Well, that's sort of asinine to, to take such a stance like that. It all has to be handled on a case-by-case -case basis, but with the knowledge that in every case, my sole intent is not to exclude anybody, but to include as many people as I am able. Uh, I want what's best for everybody, including our guests, and if what is best for them is coming to receive the body and blood, then thanks be to God. But if what is best for them is not to receive it, or to come up and just receive a blessing, which I'm happy to do, by the way, if your guests want to come up and cross their arms, I'll come by and I'll give them a blessing. But now we come to Easter. Easter was difficult because there were a lot of people that I had never seen before and never met who came in at the very last minute, rushed in, and then didn't come to talk to me. And then the service started and I had no choice but to speak with them at the communion rail, which is something I never, ever, ever want to do. One, because it takes up a lot of time uh, and breaks up the communion of that table. And two, because frankly, it's embarrassing. If you have a guest and then your guest comes up assuming that they're going to be able to receive the body and the blood, and then this strange pastor dressed in a weird outfit comes up and says, are you baptized? Do you believe that this is And starts grilling them right there. That's, it catches them off guard because they don't expect it. And it's really embarrassing because that's then public. So that's what I want to avoid, is not having to do that. But I did on Easter. Um, 
Uh, and I'm not afraid to do it, and I will do it, because I'm not going to give out the body and the blood as if it's, again, as if it's this free sample. Hey, you want to try this? Come on up, come on up. I'm not going to do it. Uh, so I will examine people, but on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, your question, has this person been baptized? That's a big question. So it, they don't know anything about the Eucharist, which raises a red flag to me, um, because even in uh, the Reformed Christian traditions, you at least know that you know about it, and they do think that it's important, although only in the sense that it represents. But it is not an unimportant thing. So people know about it. So if somebody comes in never having heard about it or not understanding it at all, that's red flag number one to me. So one of the questions I always ask is, have you been baptized? Have you been brought into the Christian community? Because like St. John of Damascus writes, we call this food the Holy Eucharist, and it is not to be given except to those who are within the Christian community. So I don't have my uh, pagan cousins come to church and then say, hey, this is the body and blood of Christ, because that's feeding them poison. And I would rather bring them into the community of faith and give them, so baptism, think of it like this. The church is a hospital, right? A hospital for sinners. Um, I don't remember who, who said that, but it's a great quote. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. So by the way, when the world tells you, well, you're a hypocrite if you believe that people need to be good, but then you sin, you say, of course I'm a hypocrite. That's why I go to church. I go to church because I am a hypocrite, because that's the place where hypocrites are treated for their illness. The, the church is a hospital for sinners. Now, how do you get into the hospital? When you go in, you have to fill out all that paperwork, and then you get your little, your neat little fashion bracelet, uh, okay? You, so you come into the church through the waters of holy baptism. That's then your mark. You have the brand of Christ, sort of like, like cattle. It's burned into you. No matter how hard you try, you can't erase it. You can run away from the flock, but you can't erase the brand. You are branded, that's your mark. You're in the hospital now. Now that you're in the hospital, come and get your medicine. You see how that works? So you don't go to the hospital and demand medicine and demand treatment when they haven't looked at you, when they don't know what your problem is, when you haven't even been admitted to the hospital. There is a proper order to things and all of the uh, steps in that order do a specific thing to help you. And that's, so come to receive your medicine if you've been admitted into the, into the body of Christ. That's to Ron's question, that is the first part of the closed communion issue, is the Christian uh, question. Are you a Christian? Are you baptized? Are you even part of this Catholic, little c, universal community? Because if the answer to that is no, it's sort of like a flow chart here. Are you a Christian? Yes or no. If the answer is no, well, then it stops right there. If the answer is yes, then we go down a little further and we do a couple more things just to make sure everything's going to be kosher here. Uh, yes? No. With this discussion on this, uh, I think the ushers, uh, like they're repeating, do a little screen when they're ushering up the communion, you know, if there's a, uh, say, if you have someone sitting with a family mm -hmm. uh, there and that, that. But one time, and Brother Greg isn't here, but uh, there was this family, no related to anybody, camping someplace and they came because uh, they saw the news of Christian. And Greg was, in, in a matter of minutes and words and time, explaining to them what caused was holy communion. And they were very, very offended and interpreted his wording that they weren't good enough to take communion and they got up and went to church right then and there. Hmm. And, and that was bad because yeah. we're, we're supposed to have open doors, as you said, this mm -hmm. is a hospital for, for uh, hypocrites and this and that. And, and but they, they took very, very and it, it bothered me, Ray, and I think he may even have visited with the pastor. Service on that, mm -hmm. on what the discussions were. So, uh, 
Yeah, well, this is one reason why if there's any screening to be done, it's with me. Because whether it takes, you know, if I don't get a chance to talk to somebody beforehand, which is my preference, that's okay. And if they walk up there, that's okay. I'll talk to them one way or another. Um, but you know, what, the, the last thing that we want to do is set up a bunch of roadblocks. And this is why I speak to them, is because I, <laughs> then if people get angry, they're not angry with family or with friends that bring them. They can be angry with me. I'm 100% okay if people want to be angry at me, and I'll take all the heat. So this is your out, by the way. If you, if you uh, have people who you think might be upset by that, have them come talk to me. Because then they can be angry with me and everybody can hate me together and that'll be fine. Uh, I don't, I'm okay with that, <laughs> honestly. I've been called every bad name in the book. I don't care. What I care about is taking care of the people. And sometimes not giving the body and the blood is taking care of those people. Uh, it is very easy to explain all of this in a way that gives us a superiority complex. It is very easy also to say, nobody but LCMS Lutherans can commune. Now I'm against that. Like I said, just because you have your synodical ID card doesn't mean that I'm going to commune you. I have withheld communion from LCMS Lutherans before, and I'm sure that someday I will do it again. And I have given communion to people who aren't LCMS Lutherans. And I'm sure that I will again. That doesn't mean that we give it to everybody. But there is discretion and pastoral care involved with uh, the distribution of the body and the blood of Christ. I'm the steward of the body and the blood. Uh, everything that I do, I have to give a report I've got a performance review coming, the likes of which you wouldn't believe. <laughs> so, uh, so I uh, do my best to take care, excuse me, care the best I'm able. Nancy. We used to have little cards that we filled out and gave to the usher as we went up. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think people that haven't been to the Bible study and haven't heard these explanations that you've given. Oh, uh, Cousin Johnny hasn't been to church for a long time. He really needs to go to communion. And they don't say anything to him. You know? mm -hmm. and let him go up and, and you Yeah, well, you know, the buck stops here. So at the end of the day, if somebody has to deal with it, it is sort of my job. So, and I, and you know, there's no illusions about what's going to happen to you when you are a pastor. Everything is right there, black and white, and you have every opportunity to get out of uh, the line of fire if you so desire. And uh, I don't desire. So if, if people have a, have a problem with that, I'll talk to them. Um, I don't, so even when I go to other LCMS churches as a visitor, I still uh, talk to the pastor ahead of time and just tell him, I'm a visitor here, this is who I am, I'm, I'm planning to commune if that's okay. Um, which is a good practice, by the way, if you're visiting at a, another church, just make a habit of going to talk to the pastor ahead of time and let him know who you are, where you come from, and what that you would like to commune. Uh, because it's not just my job, it's every pastor's job. And the feelings that I have about visitors coming and then me being worried because I don't know who they are, even if they're LCMS Lutherans, I still don't know who they are, and I don't know that because I am not clairvoyant. Uh, that's the same fear and trepidation that other pastors have as well when you go. So make that your habit. Uh, now, those little cards are announcement cards. That's an old practice that you would announce to the pastor that, you're, that you were intending on receiving the sacrament and that you give them the little card. We don't, in my opinion, we don't need that, and I'll tell you why. I assume that when you are here for divine service, 
And when I say, the peace of the Lord be with you always, and hold up the body and the blood, and when you say, amen to that, that is your announcement that you're going to receive it. And as the Christian community gathered on the Lord's day in the presence of the body and the blood, I assume that you will be partaking. And I do notice when people don't. If for some reason you have decided you're not going to receive the sacrament and you sit back, I, I am acutely aware of all of the things that go on during that service uh, because I'm standing right in front looking out at all of you the whole time. <laughs> so when somebody doesn't come up, then that's generally a time uh, for pastoral care because then you say, well, I noticed that you didn't come up. Why did you not come up? But generally speaking, my assumption is that you are all going to go up and receive the body and blood of Christ because it's the body and blood of Christ. So announcements like that are less than helpful for the normal Christian community. The speaking to the pastor ahead of time is the announcement card. Now, when I first came to this area, I didn't realize, and I don't know that I was ever told, that you can go up to communion every time. Oh, yes. Firstly, I think St. John's had it once a month, and then they went to twice a month. And I didn't go on that second because I thought, well, you're not supposed to have this more than once a month or something. I don't know what it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Easter Sunday, we had two services on Easter Sunday. They were both communion services. And there were a few people that were there for both services. And almost everybody who was there for both services came up to me privately at one time or another and said, is it okay for us to go commune? And I said, of course. This is, here's my pastoral advice to you. If you really believe that, the, that what is up there is the body and blood of Christ. And if you really believe that it does what Jesus says it does, then avail yourself of that gift as often as it is offered. Anytime that it is offered and you are able, receive it. At some point within the next year, we're going to be spending Bible class going through Luther's large catechism. And he has a whole big chunk in the large catechism about uh, going to receive the sacrament. Here's the other thing. Uh, there's often the question, how often should I go? How often, sh how often do I need to get the body and blood of Christ? And that's a bad question. <laughs> there's a professor at the seminary Dr. Naomichi Masaki, he's from Japan. I remember him because when I was in high school, I went to the seminary for a, they have a two-week summer camp there for high school boys, specifically uh, boys who are thinking maybe that they want to be pastors. So you, get, you take special classes on topics with seminary professors. It's a big deal for, for a high schooler to be there. You go to all the daily services at chapel and you get to hang out with these seminarians who, as a high schooler, you look at that and you go, oh wow, these people, oh boy, they're really up there. I'm just a high schooler. Oh, teach me, teach me. But it's really great. Plus, you know, you go to, we, we went to a water park and went to Cedar, uh, uh, Cedar Park too. Uh, so there's fun stuff too. And I was the director of it. Uh, no big deal or anything, but. Uh, uh, but anyways, Dr. Naomichi Misaki, I remember him because he told us this story about how when I was a young boy, I wanted to be a pastor, but not just any pastor. I wanted to be a pastor who drove a car. <laughs> High aspirations. But anyway, his big thing is always, you have asked the wrong question. You're getting the wrong answer because you're asking the wrong question. And this is the wrong question. How often do I need to go? Or how, how often should I go? It's not like that at all. Uh, how many times do you say to yourself, now how often do I need to kiss my wife today? 
How often do I need to tell my husband that I love him? How often do I need to give my children hugs? How often do I need to call my mother? Do you see how weird those questions sound? Because it's contrary to experience and reason. The question isn't how often do you have to or how often do you need to, it's how often do you get to. Ah, how often do I get to kiss my wife? How often do I get to tell my husband I love him? How often do I get to see my children and give them hugs? How often do I get to call my mother and tell her all the things that's going on in my life? It's a privilege that you get to do these things. And the privilege for you as Christians is that when the body and blood is there, you get to come. And it's something that you want because it's the greatest treasure that you've ever experienced here on earth. Forget mining for gold. Come to the Eucharist. I've got something better than gold and silver, better than jewels, better than money. Come and get the body and blood of Christ. And you can have it as many times as you would like. It's the same thing with confession and absolution. Multiple people have asked me, how often do I need to go to private confession and absolution? Well, you're asking the wrong question. However often you feel that you will benefit from it is how often you should go. Whenever you need it, go to it. Avail yourself of it. It's not a question of needs or have-tos. It's a question of wants and get-to. You had a question. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, all right. Well, I don't watch to see know, if people I come. Know, but you notice those things. Yes. So for me, you mm -hmm. remember that I was always taught that if you had a grudge or something or had an issue, you were not to take communion. Yeah, I understand. I was when you told us that who needs it more than that's when you need it the most. Yeah. Well, yeah, for two reasons. One, because the Eucharist is the nuclear bomb that's going to drop on your sins. So take that seriously and head in for the airstrike. Two, uh, the Eucharist is where you're going to learn to love the people that you hate. And if you don't go up there, how are you going to learn to love the people you hate? You're just going to keep on hating them. Because you're never getting the thing that's going to teach you to love them. You're never getting up close personal. You're never brushing elbows with them in the reception of the body and the blood. Now. <laughs> like I said in my explanation for that question, if you say, oh, Joe Schmo over there, I hate his guts, and I will proudly go to hell hating his guts, and I want him to go to hell so that I can hate his guts in hell. I have no remorse, no repentance, or anything. I'd rather burn than forgive him. Now, if that's your position, then we take a step back and say, you, you shouldn't receive the body and the blood of Christ. However, if as in most cases, you are struggling with the reality that you do hate that person. Joe Schmo really screwed me over, and I just really can't stand him right now. And it bothers me that I can't stand him because I know that I shouldn't, and I know that I should be seeking reconciliation, and I want to do better, then come up. Because that's where you're going to get strength so that you can go out and seek reconciliation. Going to the Eucharist doesn't negate seeking reconciliation. It encourages it, actually. But do you mean towards another person or towards the actual idea that it's the body of Christ? A person. Towards another person. Oh, okay. Holding a grudge against another person. As a Lutheran or as a Roman Catholic? Kind of both. I remember somebody else saying that. Well, let me ask you a question. By a show of hands, how many of you doubt on a regular basis one thing or another? All right, well, now don't, none of you get to come to receive the sacraments. <laughs> so you see, that's, that's, may, that's maybe what's been taught. Oh, well, sure, yeah, come to confession. Come to confession. Again, the service begins with general confession and absolution because you should always seek confession and seek absolution before you come up to receive the body and the blood. 
So the beginning of the service has that general thing, but that's a new addition. That's really new. Even the old Lutherans didn't have that. Why? Because the assumption was everybody was going to private confession and absolution so that everybody in the entire church would come to see the pastor throughout the week for private confession and absolution so that they then uh, had that under the belt and uh, could go to the Eucharist. But we do that at the beginning because most people don't want to go to private confession and absolution anymore, which is sort of too bad. I'm not an advocate for taking that out of the service, but I am also an advocate of saying, hey, if you've got sins that are troubling you, come to confession and absolution. Pastor's not going to sit there and judge you because you're not confessing to your pastor, you're confessing to Christ. The ear of the pastor is just the tomb where sins go to die. I am nothing. That's why you, oh, the pastor will vest, by the way. If you go to private confession and absolution, I will be fully vested. I won't wear a chasuble. But I'll have, a, I'll have the alb and the stole and everything on because you're not confessing to me as a, as a person. If you have something you want to say to me as a person, you can come anytime. You can come sit in my office. I, won't, I don't need to vest uh, for us to sit and talk. But if you're going to confess sins, well, then we need to take it a little more seriously because you're not confessing to me, you're confessing to Christ. Which is then why your pastor is also not going to judge you and look at you the next time he sees you and go, boy, I can't believe Aubrey did that. I'm never going to think of her the same way. Oh, my word. No. <laughs> See, that's not, that's not the, well, you're right. I don't want to know. Uh, <laughs> but Christ does. And if it's troubling you, then bring it up. Because there is something to be said for that individual absolution when the pastor grabs your head and touches you and says, you, Nancy Peters, your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And I, you know, I always trace the sign of the cross on the forehead because that's an important thing. There's a, there's a tactile quality to that. Like when we do corporate confession and individual absolution, everybody comes up. That absolution is yours in the general absolution. I speak to the whole congregation. Yeah, okay, that's great. It's, it's yours and you can cling to that and there's nothing wrong with it. But there is, uh, in a certain way, more comfort when it's just for you. When you are right there face to face and it's all yours and your name is the name that's spoken and it's not something that's being thrown out to everybody, but it's something that's coming privately, just one-on-one, -on -one, just to you. And that sign of the cross is made on your forehead. And I'm not gentle or wishy-washy about it. If I'm gonna make the sign of the cross on you, I'm gonna make the sign of the cross. You're gonna know it. Uh, well, let, I'm not gonna do that unless I feel like you really need a reminder. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, I'm not going to, I don't do that. But, but I, don't, I don't like the pastors, or I don't like the practice. I don't have anything against the interview. The, the practice of, like this. Carol and I forgive you. Oh, just, come on, you're so close. Just, <laughs> just, just put your hands on that person. Make the sign of the cross on that person. I, I know uh, a past, at least one pastor that does a practice where he takes the stole, which is, of course, the yoke of the office of the holy ministry, and he puts the stole over your head as you kneel there for private absolution. And then he puts his hand on top of the stole to announce forgiveness. And I think that that's sort of cool because it, the idea behind that practice is that it teaches you it's not the man who forgives your sins, it's the office. It's not the words spoken by some 27-year-old guy. It's the words of Christ. Again, I can't emphasize enough to you how much it isn't about me. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's always about Christ and about what Christ is doing for you. Is doing, present tense, because he doesn't <laughs> stop doing it. That is the reality. Any other questions? All right, well, we have just enough time to look at a couple things here. Uh, yeah, I printed out new handouts. Handouts, I, sh 
I say this at the very end. The bulletin uh, and the handouts are on this little card table here because I didn't want to try and cram everything on with the treats. So they're right around the corner here because I know we ran out last week. And thanks be to God. Hey, I was actually really, I was really happy about that, that we ran out of handouts. That's really nice. So there's more if you want one or if you want one for a friend because I think I've probably printed too many today. <laughs> but hey, you know, once bitten, twice shy, right? Okay, so uh, we're on the Trinity. We're on point three, I think. Yeah, we're on point three. So we're just going to look at a couple scripture passages here and talk about this third thesis, which is the persons of the Godhead are distinct even in their unity and that they are distinctly identified. So remember, the first one, first thesis is that God is one. Oneness doesn't mean singular. One, to say that God is one is different than saying there is one God. They're both true statements, but they are different statements. To say God is one means that God is united, that there is a plurality that is in agreement. Like when I say that we confess the creed with one voice, if that was to be taken literally, it would be laughable because there are 30 different voices here. Well, we can't all use the same voice. We don't share the same voice box. But we confess with one voice because we are of one accord. We are in unity when we confess and therefore we are one Voice. That is the same with God. God is one, not because there is just one part, but because there is unity within the multiple parts of the Godhead. Okay, that's reviewed. The second thesis, ah yes, within the oneness of God, there are multiple persons, three persons, co-equal, all possessing the same uh, authority and power, and co-eternal, all uh, dwelling eternally. Now, three, the persons of the Godhead, these multiple persons, are distinct. They are distinct even in their unity and they are distinctly identified. So, we're going to look at Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand Till I make your enemies your yeah, that's it. Just that first verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, first of all, who wrote this psalm? Yes, David. Does your, do your Bibles say a psalm of David? Yeah, okay. Uh, so David is writing this psalm. So the first little sentence, or clause... The Lord, does your Bible have that in block capitals? Okay, who is that? If it's in block capitals, yeah, yeah it's Yahweh. So this, this Hebrew word, it, that's called the tetragrammaton, because it's tetra for grammaton. Tetragrammaton, four letters. Okay? Remember, uh, in case you're confused, Hebrew reads backwards. Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. Hebrew also doesn't have any vowels. In case you were thinking about learning Hebrew, I would advise against it. <laughs> Which, that offends my wife's sensibilities, because she loves Hebrew. She's sort of strange like that. Now, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, Yahweh, this is the name of the Lord. Uh, and this, they don't translate it in your Bible as Yahweh. Sometimes people will say Jehovah. 
Jehovah's made up. That doesn't mean anything. That's not even what the Bible says. In order to write the name Jehovah. So, yeah, here we go. Tangent. <laughs> Who would have thought? Um, in order to write vowels in Hebrew, it's, there's something called pointing. So, uh, let's see. Well, we can just do it like this. With this word here, pointing would be something like this. This is nonsense, by the way. So that's a vowel. This is a vowel. This is a vowel. So it's just dots. And the different dots and where the different dots sit tell you what the vowel is. But that's added on later by um, scribes and editors. Because the, the language Hebrew... It's basically a shorthand language. Everybody knows what they're saying. They don't need the vowels. Sort of like when you say it's or don't. That's in a way shorthand, your contraction, because you're cutting letters out that you don't need. You don't say, do not do that, child. You say, hey, don't do that. You get it out faster. Hopefully stop them from doing whatever it is they're doing. Uh, but that's sort of, sort of the way Hebrew is. It cuts out the vowels, so the only thing there is the consonants. Now, there are rules about where vowels can go and what kind of vowels can be used. And in order to get the word Jehovah, you have to break all of the rules of Hebrew. And you put a bunch of letters, vowels here, that changes from Yahweh to Yehovah, uh, by making up your own rules. So anybody who tells you that Jehovah is the name of God is incorrect, because Jehovah isn't the name of anything. It's made up. Yahweh is as close to we come as knowing what the name of God is. And because of that, we don't translate it. Nobody writes, and Yahweh said, or most people don't. Some people do, I would say. Soon. But when they translate it, they translate Lord in block capitals to tell you that in this case, it's not Adonai. Adonai is uh, Lord. So think of uh, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the great O come, uh, or the great O antiphons. Okay? One of the O antiphons is O Adonai, O Lord. Uh, so Adonai is Lord, which often refers to Christ. Hint, hint. Yahweh is also translated Lord, but in block capitals. So you can tell who it is by looking at the capitals. So the Lord in block capitals is who? Yahweh. It is the God of the promise. The Lord said to my Adonai... My Lord, who's speaking again, who's writing the psalm? David. David. Who is David's Lord? David's the king. He doesn't have a Lord. Or does he? God. Yeah. Now let's be specific. God help me. The Lord is God the Father. Okay. My Lord is Jesus. Is Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord. The Father said to the Son. There you go. One verse, and you already see the distinction between the persons. And what does he say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What does Jesus do after his ascension? Sits at the right hand of the Father. Everything's about Jesus. Questions? Okay. Clear as mud. Matthew 3. Matthew 3. Verses 13 through 17. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you 
me, Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Through 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Okay. How many persons of the Godhead can you count here? Three. Hey, fancy that. It's like I planned it. Uh, three persons. You have Jesus, and if you didn't know anything about Jesus, you wouldn't know that Jesus is part of the Godhead. So we're going to set Jesus aside for a second. He's just some guy that's now here to be baptized. John knows who he is. John knew who he was before John was even born. He leapt in the womb. He leapt in the amniotic fluid in the presence of this person. By the way, if you don't believe that infants can hear and have faith, John the baptizer should be your proof. But in any event, here is Jesus. Now Jesus is baptized, and what comes out of heaven? A dove. And who is the dove? Yes, the Spirit of God descending like a dove. There's the Spirit. So that's our first for sure. The Spirit comes down. And then what happens? There is a voice from heaven. Well, we don't know anything about voices, so we're going to put the voice to the side for a second. And the voice says... This is my son. This Jesus, not the Spirit, this Jesus, the Spirit, Jesus is my son. Which means, what about the voice? If the voice has a son, that makes the voice a father. You can't have a son if you're not a father. So there we have the Spirit, that's the dove. We have the voice from heaven identifying himself as the Father, and identifying Jesus as the Son. There are three persons. They are distinct. The persons of the Trinity are distinct. They are unified, but they are distinct. That's one of the mysteries of the Trinity. How can somebody be one and yet be three distinct persons at the same time? It's impossible. Is absolutely impossible. But not for God, because that's who God is. Um, and then finally, Matthew 17. Verses 1 through 8. Yeah, okay, great. This is, of course, the transfiguration. Uh, one of the great things about this account is the vocabulary that the evangelists use to speak about the transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured before them. Now, it's, he's not like a transformer. He's not a robot in disguise. He is metamorphose. I love the word metamorphose. 
like a metamorphosis of your caterpillar into a butterfly, transfigured, changed. That Jesus goes to the mountain and all of a sudden he is changed before the very eyes. The humility of the incarnation for a split second is gone. And they see him for who he truly is, the Son of God in all of his glory. Uh, and we could talk all day about the transfiguration, but unfortunately, we have to skip to the end here. This is my beloved son. Again, it's the same as at his baptism. This is my beloved son. This guy here, and if he is a son, then that means that I have to be a father, because this can't be my son unless I am his father. And I can't be his father unless he is my son. So there is, there's the distinct persons. He, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is also the, the really great thing about the vocabulary choices. What is the command to the disciples? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, no. Boy, this sort of fell flat. What, are your, what translations are you all using? Is this the ESV? Well, let me tell you something. In, in the New King James, which is what I have up here, it doesn't say listen. It says hear him. And that's why I love it so much, because really, hear him is closer to what the Greek is saying. Hear him. You can argue that it's a semantic difference between listening and hearing. But if you've been hanging out with me in Bible class, you know that one of my soapboxes is listening and hearing are not the same thing. Listening is active, but hearing is passive. Your job as the church, your job as the disciples of Christ, your job, O Israel, hear, O Israel. Your job is to hear. Hearing puts the force of the action on the word that is spoken. That when Christ speaks, you hear because the word is coming to you and it's working upon you. The word is doing something. You always know what the word is doing too, by the way, because the word does what it says. So when it says, this is my body, then that's what it does. When it says your sins are forgiven, then that's what it does. But it's always the word that's working upon you. So that you would never even have the opportunity to puff yourself up and say, boy, I listened really well in church today. That's sort of, you know, what, what your kids say. Uh, do, I get, do I get a candy bar? Because I listened really well in church today. I was so good. We don't get to go to God and say, hey, I listened to Jesus really, really well. Can I, you know, a little something, something here for me? For my troubles, throw me a bone. I listen so well. It's not about that. It's about hearing what the word actively is coming and doing and saying to you. Now, we're going to continue this. Oh, uh, no. We are starting something. Uh, we're taking a, a one-week break from this for next week. And it's going to be a surprise. You'll see. Uh, but any questions before we go here? The old King James also says, The old King James. Yeah, hear ye him. Oh, that's beautiful. See, the King James. Now, I'm not the kind of guy that says the King James Version is the only translation and that when Jesus spoke, he spoke King James English. But there's something kind of cool about the King James Version, although it's harder to read. Carolyn and I have a big... Uh, my mother and father got it for us. It's a big family Bible. The old kind with the real beautiful illuminations and you open the first few pages and it's got the genealogy and, uh, and my mom even took the time to fill that whole thing in from both sides of the family. Yeah, so that was a Christmas present to the two of us. Uh, but that's the King James Version. So we were, we were doing the congregation at prayer one night and uh, is this appropriate to tell? Hmm. Well, I'll censor it. Uh, we, were reading, we were reading through the Joseph narratives, 
And the, the language is a little bit more dense, of course, and it takes you a little more time to get through. And I'm sitting there reading, reading our, from our family Bible at our kitchen table, doing our family devotion in the evening after supper. And uh, we, we're reading from uh, Genesis when Joseph puts the cup back into Benjamin's sack. And then they load up the donkeys and they go away. Except for donkey isn't the word that the King James Version uses to describe that animal. So I was just reading through the book and got to that part and stopped and went back and reread it to make sure that I had read exactly what it said. And I had. And we had to take a break from family devotion because we were unfortunately laughing too hard. <laughs> so uh, as much as I love the King James Version, sometimes the English is uh, too much removed. <laughs> but that's great. Hear ye him. I am a big proponent for the words ye, for the word ye, because in English, you don't have a way of distinguishing you singular from you plural, unless if you're from the south, you say y'all, or if you're from the north, you say you guys, you and you guys. Uh, but if you say you or ye, then it works. So. I'm going, to, I'm going to start a petition, we should all sign it, to bring back ye into our vocabulary. <laughs> uh, well, see, then I'd have to do a counter-counter uh, petition because I'm all about you guys. <laughs> uh, okay, but, all right, uh, any questions for real this time? We'll, uh, okay, I'll see you in church then.